1: Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show. I was thinking of something Natan Sharansky said recently, quote, I want to emphasize I'm not speaking about dangers to democracy. I'm speaking about the danger to the freedom of people. After all, freedom begins inside you. If you are afraid to speak publicly about your views, you're not a free person, close quote. I was thinking of that quote in a couple of contexts. First, foundationally, it's important we never forget something we easily err on here. Our founding was not at base concretizing or speaking to states' rights. At base, our founding was about protecting individual rights If individual rights are or were better protected at a more localized governmental level, such as a state, great. But whatever the mechanism for the defense and protection, it is individual rights we first and foremost must preserve and protect. Second, the fear of speaking out, the fear of punishment, private or public, for airing or publicizing your views is at once the first and the final sanction, and intimidation against freedom, and the first and final method of tyrannical control. It can start subtly, which is why I say it's the first. But as it gains custom and countenance, as it becomes more and more the coin of the realm, as we come used to and inured to it, it is the final control valve, the final method for When controlling ideology becomes dominant and an entire stage of what is acceptable political discourse and what is not becomes the whole stage, the whole world sits upon it. It's not that the whole world is a stage, as Shakespeare said. It's that the whole stage is dominated and themed by one viewpoint or worldview. The fear is not that one man will play many parts. It's that one view will dominate all men. And all the men and women are at first forced to go along and then are deprived of even thinking they're going along or not. The one view becomes the whole realm of existence, hence totalitarian. Think of the playwright Vaclav Havel for a moment. Yes, he was imprisoned for his dissidence in Czechoslovakia back when there was such a thing. But first, before he was imprisoned, His plays were banned from public performance. This is why even long before Havel's travails, someone like Robert Jackson could write that struggles to coerce uniformity of sentiment in support of some end thought essential to their time and country have been waged by many well, by many good, as well as by many evil men. Ultimate futility of such attempts to compel coherence is the lesson of every such effort from the Roman drive to stamp out Christianity as a disturber of its pagan unity, the Inquisition as a means to religious and dynastic unity, the Siberian exiles as a means to Russian unity, down to the fast-falling effort of our present totalitarian enemies." Those who begin coercive elimination of dissent, he continued, soon find themselves exterminating dissenters. Compulsory unification of opinion achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard. It seems trite but necessary to say that the First Amendment to our Constitution was designed to avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings, close quote. And so given a series of thoughts along these lines, I was led to thinking about that great essay Vaclav Havel wrote from 1978. It's called The Power of the Powerlessness, as its theme is based on how tyrannies, totalitarian cultures, force through measures specific and subtle the people under it to slowly accept the living with or under or in a lie living in a lie, we can think of any number of lies, lies we seem to be operating under right now, whether having to do with the exquisite rituals of empty exactitude with regard to the virus or accepting what's happening at the border and the administration's defenses and parries about it, to issues of race, to issues of gender choice, to the very senescence of our president. We seem now nearly forced, and in some cases totally forced, to accept lies about all these things, even though we know they're lies. And the funny thing is, both sides know their lies. Even those who perpetuate them know their lies. And so, if I may, some ic- excerpts from Vaclav Havel's essay. He writes, "Because the regime is captive to its own lies, it must falsify everything." It falsifies the past, it falsifies the present, and it falsifies the future. It falsifies statistics. It pretends not to possess an omnipotent and unprincipled police apparatus. It pretends to respect human rights. It pretends to persecute no one. It pretends to fear nothing. It pretends to pretend nothing. Individuals need not believe all these mystifications, but they must behave as though they do. Or they must at least tolerate them in silence or get along well with those who work with them. For this reason, however, they must live within a lie. They need not accept the lie. It is enough for them to have accepted their life with it and in it. For by this very fact, individuals confirm the system, fulfill the system, make the system, become the system. Ideology is one of the pillars of the system's external stability. This pillar, however, is built on a very unstable foundation, as it is built on lies. It works only as long as people are willing to live within the lie. There is obviously something in human beings which responds to this system, something they reflect and accommodate, something within them which paralyzes every effort of their better selves to revolt. Human beings are compelled to live within a lie, but they can be compelled to do so only because they are, in fact, capable of living in a lie. Therefore, not only does the system alienate humanity, but at the same time, alienated humanity supports the system as its own involuntary master plan, as a degenerate image of its own degeneration, as a record of people's own failures as individuals. At the same time, each person is capable, to a greater or lesser extent, of coming to terms with living within the lie. Each person somehow succumbs to a profane trivialization of his inherent humanity and to utilitarianism. In everyone, there is some willingness to merge with the anonymous crowd and to flow comfortably along with it down the river of pseudo-life. This is much more than a simple conflict between two identities, something far worse. It's a challenge to the very notion of identity itself. Take a manager of a fruit and vegetable shop who places in his window among his onions and carrots the slogan Workers of the World Unite. Why does he do it? What is he trying to communicate to the world? Is he genuinely genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of unity among workers of the world? Is his enthusiasm so great that he feels an irrepressible impulse to acquaint the public with these ideals? Has he really given more than a moment's thought to how such a unification might occur and what it would mean? I think it can safely be assumed that the overwhelming majority of such shopkeepers never think about the slogans they put in their windows, nor do they use them to express their real opinions. That poster was delivered to our greengrocer from the Enterprise headquarters along with the onions and carrots, think BLM. He put them all into the window simply because it has been done that way for years, because everyone does it, and because that is the way it has to be. If he were to refuse, there could be trouble, think BLM. He could be reproached for not having the proper decoration in his window. Someone might even accuse him of disloyalty, think BLM. He does it because these things must be done if one is to get along in life, think BLM. It is one of the thousands of details that guarantee him a relatively tranquil life in harmony with society, as they say. Obviously, the greengrocer is indifferent to the semantic content of slogan on exhibit. He does not put the slogan in his window from any personal desire to acquaint the public with the idea it expresses. This of course does not mean that his action has no motive or significance at all or that the slogan communicates nothing to anyone. The slogan is really a sign and as such it contains a subliminal but very definite message. Verbally it might be expressed this way, I the green grocer live here and I know what I must do. I behave in the manner expected of me. I can be depended upon and beyond reproach. I am obedient, and therefore I have the right to be left in peace. Think BLM. This message, of course, has an address. See, it is directed above to the greengrocer's superior, and at the same time, it is a shield that protects the greengrocer from potential informers or violence. The slogan's real meaning, therefore, is rooted firmly in the greengrocer's existence. It reflects his most vital of interests. Let us now imagine that one day something in our greengrocer snaps and he stops putting up the slogans merely to ingratiate himself. He stops voting in elections he knows are a farce. He begins to say what he really thinks at political meetings. And he even finds the strength in himself to express solidarity with those whom his conscience commands him to support. In this revolt, the Green Grocer steps out of living within the lie. He rejects the ritual and breaks the rules of the game. He discovers once more his suppressed identity and dignity. He gives his freedom a concrete significance. His revolt is an attempt to live within the truth. He has exposed everything as a mere game. He has shattered the world of appearances, the fundamental pillar of a totalitarian system. He has upset the power structure by tearing apart what holds it together, the lie. He has demonstrated that living a lie is living a lie. He has broken through the exalted facade of the system and exposed the real base foundations of power. He has said that the emperor is naked. And because the emperor is, in fact, naked, something extremely dangerous has happened. By his action, the greengrocer has now addressed the world. He has enabled everyone to peer behind the curtain. He has shown everyone that it is possible to live within the truth. For living within the lie can constitute the system only if it is universal. The principle must embrace and permeate everything. There are no terms whatsoever on which it can coexist with living within the truth, and therefore everyone who steps out a line denies it in principle and threatens it in its entirety, thus the word totalitarian. As long as living a lie is not confronted with living the truth, the perspective needed to expose its mendacity is lacking. As soon as the alternative appears, however, it threatens the very existence of appearance and living a lie in terms of what they are both, both their essences and their all-inclusivenesses. If the main pillar of the system is living a lie, then it is not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living the truth. This is why it must be suppressed more severely than anything else. Don't suppress the truth. Expose the lie. Before it becomes all consuming. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 6025080960. I hope you had a, uh, a really good weekend. And um, I want to do a movie update with Bill, too. He's caught up on a couple classics that I think I've encouraged him to see, and we'll talk about that. This um, pertinent to my um, monologue, this um, border situation, I thought would peter out a little bit because the media would give up and move on. But it seems that uh, a combination of Jen Psaki and Joe Biden have um, given the press something to sink their teeth in. And it's a bit about the crisis, but it's really about the banning of media from taking uh, pictures of or visiting uh, CPB, uh, Customs and Border Protection Facilities. And as uh, one journalist, John Moore, tweeted Friday, I have photographed CPB under Bush, Obama, and Trump, but now zero access is granted to the media. These long lens images are taken from the Mexican side. So the um, Democratic congressman who uh, is down in uh, southern Texas, Henry Cuellar, has been standing up to his own house, the Democratic Party here and um, released a series of pictures today that um, he received from from someone who did get access covertly. Uh, either it was a CPB person working there or someone else. And uh, the pictures are not good. They are available uh, online. They were not released by the White House. Jen Psaki was asked why the White House would not be releasing pictures since officials have gone down there And no doubt pictures were taken. And she dodged on that saying, again, we will um, we will uh, do everything we can to comply with transparency. The only thing transparent about the situation down at the border right now in this administration is um, that um, is that the migrants or the immigrants are in clear pens akin to cages. That is to say, um, you can see through them, uh, which is to say instead of fencing, it's plastic or some kind of plastic. It's hard to say based on what I'm looking at here. Perhaps it's plexiglass. But as the Fox News story on it puts it, the migrants who are in clear pins akin to cages are seen sleeping on pads on the floor with aluminum blankets. In some instances, it appears that dozens are sharing individual pens. Most appear to be wearing masks. That's, of course, the important thing, right, as long as they're wearing masks. Um, uh, As the story goes on, amid a significant surge of migrants to the southern border in President Biden's first two months, some in the media have complained about lack of access uh, to facilities like the one from where Henry Cuellar released photographs. Um, There is no modern precedent for a full physical ban on media access to customs and border protection, border operations. There's just none. Um, Children presenting at our border who are fleeing violence, who are fleeing persecution, who are fleeing uh, terrible situations is not a crisis, Jen Psaki maintains. I don't know how you maintain that that is not a crisis, especially when you have the overflow situation in places like these pods, if they're not cages, they're pods, where you have 400 people, most of them unaccompanied male minors in facilities designed for 260 people. There's no physical distancing. This isn't 50% capacity. This is less than, excuse me, this is greater than 50% capacity. It's over 150% capacity in these pods or Cages, if you will, containers, whatever you want to call them. Um, Henry Cuellar uh, has uh, not been silenced. Uh, he will not follow the talking points of the White House. And he said today, quote, we have terrible conditions for the children going on right now. We have terrible conditions for these children. The only thing I guess that would make this somewhat um, A bigger media story is if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would go down and take a picture of herself. She could revive her white pantsuit if she wants, Um, trying to get a picture of these pods or cages. You'll recall that the picture she took crying when Donald Trump was president made it around the world in 80 Seconds. Of course, it wasn't a picture of cages or anything like that, but an empty parking lot that uh, she didn't realize anyone had taken a picture of her taking a picture of herself crying. But right now there's no excuse, and these aren't empty parking lots. These are empty promises from a White House that has created its own crisis. Seth Leibson Show, 34 past the hour, brings us our culture and economy update with the one and only John Dombrowski of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, his website grandcanyonplanning.com, his radio show on this very station, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about some long-term uh, thoughts vis-a-vis present-day volatilities. JD, how are you, sir? How was hey! your weekend?
0: Fantastic, Seth. What's happening?
1: Everything is good. The markets seem to be up, although I see the government is getting ready to spend trillions more. Yeah. Nonetheless, you have been <laughs> thinking a lot about volatility and long-term. And it's yeah. hard to plan long-term in some people's consciences, I guess, when they're looking at present-day volatility, right?
0: Uh, that's pretty much it in a nutshell, yes. And we're just on a, on a side note here. On March 22nd of 1933, this just goes back to see about, yes, they're going to be spending more money, the government. Yeah. Back in 1933, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Beer and Wine Revenue Act, mm-hmm. which levied a tax on alcohol beverages, right? So to raise revenue again for the federal government. And um, this is just an ongoing uh, part of our life. Boy, everything is taxed. And um, that's why they could spend all this money, I guess, right? Because they're going to try to raise more money from us. And uh, unfortunately... We're starting to see interest rates, uh, you know, move a little bit. That created some volatility, as we saw here, Seth, just recently in the markets. And some people are getting nervous about that, because if you look at this this bull run that we've been on for, for this past decade, um, we don't see, oftentimes, we see these pullbacks, but people are getting nervous. And I would suggest this. If we think long-term, if I go back to 1981, IBM created the PC, the personal computer. How would you have liked to have bought stock back then and held on to it all this time? You probably did pretty good. Apple, Macintosh, 1984 is when they came out with their Macintosh. Pretty good investment over time. 1985, Microsoft launched Windows. Again, a pretty good company to invest in over decades of time. And the saga just continues as we see other industry and technology constantly revolutionize the way we do business. So investing for the long term, Seth, even though there's volatility along the way, if you could take that emotion out of it, which is difficult sometimes, you can really make an impact on your financial well-being over time.
1: Does um, Does it pay... John, to think about big companies that go through um, what Jim Cramer calls cycles or cyclical stocks. I know, I know, he's kind of a, a, a superstar on television and stuff, but he's right. making a lot of news these days, saying, you know, take a look at cyclical stocks for the future. Now right. that um, now that uh, tech holdings might 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 be something you want to trim, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on that kind of thing.
0: Well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with with again diversifying your yeah. portfolio, right? Yeah. I'm not saying you should throw all your money into one company or just into one sector yeah. of the market. Yeah. You definitely want to have exposure, but
1: so he's looking, are- for example, for the audience. He's talking about airlines, he's talking about steel, things like that, right? That's what he means. Yeah. I
0: yeah, so you think about how well, how beaten up those those sectors of the market right. got right, right over the last right. year, right. and we saw technology just being the leader. Why? Because technology is is what got us out of this this pandemic. It, it allowed companies to continue to operate and do business, and and so it, it a lot of areas that maybe we weren't really expecting to have such growth spurts did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you happen to be in those, boy, you caught a tremendous spurt that you may not see for quite some time again however uh now yeah we're starting to see it, this transition and you and I have talked about this over the past couple of months this rotation yep. Yep. that that has been happening now is it is it something that could be long lasting no one knows so I think anyone would tell you diversification is the key to a successful portfolio. So is it possible maybe to take some of the profits that you've made over the years and some of the more aggressive technology holdings that you have and start to allocate those across other areas of the market? Probably not a bad idea. But again, understanding what your time horizon is and what you're really looking for out of your portfolio is going to drive those types of decisions whether you need that. income now or you're looking for growth for decades ahead
1: well done thank you jd
0: you bet securities and advisory services are offered through client one securities LLC, a member of finland typically and investment advisor grand canyon planning associates LLC and client one securities LLC are not affiliated check out our website grand canyon planning you can schedule an appointment right there on our website
1: and your radio show saturdays here at seven
0: the word on wealth thank you sir
1: thank you john I'm Seth Leibson, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. I um. I, I, I guess I'm 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 a little bit still surprised that here we are um two full months into the Biden administration and the major stories in the news are about the previous president, uh, who, by the way, is also giving more interviews to the press than the current president. Yes, we'll have a press conference with Joe Biden this Thursday. It was announced um Ten days prior to, uh, actually two weeks prior uh, to uh, this Thursday, and no doubt he's studying up on it. He uh, had no appearances at all today. No one saw him today. No one outside of the White House. I think that's interesting. The um, the uh, relevancies and analogs to aged Soviet. Leaders is uh, top in my mind right now, especially when you think about what I said in my monologue about living a lie. Uh, we're living a lie that we have a commander in chief and President of the United States who's in command of things. So instead what we do is we continue to talk about the previous president. For example, it's his fault for solidifying solidifying the border. It's his fault for solidifying the border that we now have people uncontrollably flooding into and across the border because President Biden reversed the previous president's solidification. Does that make sense to you? No, that would be called living a lie, as Václav Havel put it. And then, of course, this weird story that I got to hand it to... um, I got to hand it to this lobby organization, Um, this lobby organization called Stop AAPI Hate. Um, It created itself last year and has made more news in the last week and a half or two about rising Asian hate crime statistics than any organization I've ever heard of that has only been a year old The leadership of which people do not know very much and methodologies, methodologies used that no one in the press seems to be concerned about or questioning. For example, there is a story over at Cronkite News. um, That's the Arizona PBS press site written by a uh, senior at ASU, one Samantha Molina. That starts this way, uh, published, uh, let's see, a day or two ago, two days ago. Phoenix, Stateline Phoenix. Atlanta police say it's too early to say whether Tuesday's shooting rampage, which left six women of Asian descent dead, was a hate crime. But there's no question that hate is on the rise for many Asian Americans who are frightened but not surprised by such attacks. Um, Why do we know nothing of the two others that were killed, by the way, who weren't Asian? You think their families are happy about this situation because they weren't Asian? No. Do you think the Asian families who lost people in Atlanta are happy that we all know that they're Asian and nothing else about them? No. And what's this business about the, quote, there's no question that hate is on the rise for many Asian Americans? Is there no question about that? And when you look at these stories that continually blame Donald Trump for the rise because of his speaking about the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus, I just have to say it doesn't parse. It doesn't parse. The organization promoting this that's getting all the attention says that there were 3,800 incidents of anti-Asian bias. Read the report, please. Go to it. Go to the report. 20% of those is shunning, and over 65%, excuse me, 68% is verbal. Now, you may say, what the heck is shunning? How do you understand what shunning is? Well, they have two examples in their report. That's all they give you is two examples. You want to know them? Here they are. It quotes one person in Naples, Florida, quote, I came into the coffee shop at Mercato and people started leaving the area where I sat one by one. They sat on the other side of the coffee shop. I became isolated on one side of the coffee shop. Does that sound like a hate crime to you? Who knows why people moved? Who knows what that person was doing? Perhaps there was a cough or a sneeze. We're in a time of social distancing. Nonetheless, shunning. So the reason I question these numbers about 3,800, when 20%, that is to say almost 800, are examples like that, that's a hate crime? Because you look at the FBI hate crime statistics if you want to get hard government numbers. And the most recent number for anti-Asian incidents that the FBI reported was 158. Not 3,800, not 2,800, not 1,800, not hundreds of hundreds. But 158 anti-Asian incidents, all too many, of course, of course. But when the FBI puts these numbers out, at least you know that it is from a serious, at least a serious government agency that vets somewhat, at least its numbers. And that when people report them to a police agency, they are doing so knowing that if they lie, they are breaking the law. Who knows what this organization, this newfangled organization's criteria for reporting are. If it's that simple that I had to sit alone in a coffee shop when people moved away from me, then I think we have defined deviancy as much as hate crime down. It's not a hate crime. You don't know anything about that situation. You don't know anything about it. Now, as long as we're at it, I heard this and it made me look up the numbers. As long as we're dealing with this, I heard Dennis Prager talking to uh, to uh, someone about it, Mort Klein this morning, about it. So anyone want to talk about the anti-Jewish incidents, which usually run about four times greater than anti-Asian incidents? No, no one wants to. So when the year of 168 Asian incidents took place, do you want to know how many anti-Jewish hate crimes took place? 990. Anyone want to say this is an anti-Semitic country? No. Are there anti-Semites in it? Yes. Is it anti-Semitic? No. Is it anti-Asian? I don't know. I don't know about the anti-Asian, but I will tell you where the form of most discrimination comes. And it has to do in affirmative action race-based plans for admissions to colleges and universities where conservatives, typically Trump supporters, including the Trump Department of Justice, backed Asian Americans who were suing places like Harvard and Yale for discrimination and not liberal judges who dismissed the Harvard complaint or the Biden administration which dropped the lawsuit on behalf of Asians against Yale. If that, if you want to see bias against Asians, that's where it really is, in college admissions. And the Democrats have been nowhere to be found, whereas, it, whereas it's been conservative and Republican-type organizations working on behalf of Asians to stop those programs. Maybe we can also stop this nonsense. I'm contemplating this notion that by calling it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus that we um, initiated uh, an outbreak of anti-Asian violence in America. I'm just contemplating how that could have possibly worked. Um, Did we want to say nothing of China? Can we say nothing of China? Can we not criticize the Chinese government for slave labor without the thought, coming to us that Americans are going to start engaging in anti-Asian hate crimes? This is absurdity on stilts. Spanish flu, West Nile virus, MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, Zika, Ebola. When we talked about the Zika virus, was there an outbreak of Beatings against Ugandans? The Ebola virus? Was there an outbreak of beatings against Africans in America generally? Of course not. What about the Hong Kong flu of 1968 that Ronald Reagan spoke about and others did as well? What about the 1957 Hong Kong flu? Uh, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. You give things, as Shakespeare said, you give to airy abstraction a habitation and a name. And what we have standardly done with every other virus or illness or outbreak, Lyme disease, is named the origin of it, the geographical origin of it. But then again, with this virus which I'm going to call the Chinese virus, the coronavirus, the Wuhan virus, whatever you want to call it, so that people know what we're talking about. Then again, with this one, nothing as pertaining to previous outbreaks, nothing as pertaining to previous dealings with flus and viruses was the same. Never before have we done to ourselves what we did to ourselves here. Never before did we take the vulnerable population and isolate the healthy population and quarantine the healthy population. Never before did we quarantine an entire economy. Never before did we punish children because of a virus that uh, disproportionately and negatively affected the obese and the aged. Nothing we did here was like before. But then again... Nothing about these times are like anything before either. But it's not because things have changed so momentously and beyond the grasp of rationality. It's not as if we've been invaded by aliens who have turned our world upside down. It's because we've been invaded by a leftism. And that virus has infected our minds and our characters. And that's what's turned everything upside down.